Good morning again. We are back in our series in Genesis after a week off. Got a break last week when I was out of town. We're back in chapter 17, and we'll just pick up a verse 1. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless, that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. Then Abram fell on his face, and God said to him, Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham. For I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. And God said to Abraham, as for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Every male throughout your generations, whether born in your house or bought with your money from any foreigner who is not from of your offspring, both he who is born in your house and he who is bought with your money shall surely be circumcised. So shall my covenant be in your flesh, an everlasting covenant. Any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. It's the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would meet us in your word, even as you promised to do. You've given it to us not so that you might be a mystery, but that we might know you, that we might know how deep your love for us is, how great your grace is on our behalf, and how powerful the Spirit is at work in us. So show that to us this morning, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Last week, I was out of town for a wedding. Uh, it was fun. I got, you know, it got me thinking about weddings again. And as we, you know, I, I, every time I do a wedding, I get the rehearsal together. You, you know, I sit down the wedding party, the families, and there's a bunch of stuff you have to go through. Um, and I have a kind of growing list of, <laughs> through the years of the things that I, I want to make sure I tell everybody. One of, the, you know, one of them is how to stand. You know, not like a statue the whole time because you're going to lock your knees and you're going to pass out. Uh, and I tell them about the bridesmaid that I once saw go stiff as a board and pass out on a stone floor, which was not good. Um, but one of the, the main thing I actually want to communicate in the midst of all that is that we, we do this ceremony as a worship service because we're taking vows before God. And I, I really want to kind of set the tone for what we're doing. Uh, 
at a rehearsal for a wedding because all of our weddings are designer now, right? We, we want to, you know, there's this massive industry. Charleston's like a hub of this, you know? And, uh, and more and more, we want it to be our own thing. And, and most of that's fine. Most, you know, most of that's not necessarily a problem. But of course, a ceremony is important because it ascribes meaning and it's important for everybody to understand why we're there and that the steps we're going through are not empty. They're not ritual, but rather they are giving meaning to the, to the marriage that's about to be forged. Well, similarly, we have a covenantal ceremony that's started here. And there's a lot of confusion that comes out of it, but what I, what I think is clear, what I think God is teaching us here this morning from this passage is that in this ceremony, God is making clear that his work is a gift. He is making it clear that he will guarantee it, and he gives us a guidepost to follow. It is a gift, it is a guarantee, and... He gives us a guidepost. God makes it clear that it's a gift. Uh, well, he's really been doing that all throughout Abraham's life, right? All through this guy's life, we have seen that it is God who is the one who acts. He initiates when Abraham is 75 years old. <laughs> he initiates things. He calls Abraham, right? This is back in chapter 12. We hear in chapter 15 that he's still going to deliver on his promise for children. And then in chapter 16, Abram takes it into his own hands with an idea. He's 85 at that point. This is, that's 10 years after he was called. Uh, he, he takes matters into his own hands. We, we went through all that in chapter 16. He has this son via his wife's servant named Ishmael. And now he is 99 years old, 13 years after Ishmael is born. God shows up. And what we know of Abram is that, is that while he has followed God by faith, at times he also, every time he has a plan, plan it, is, it is a failure. It doesn't really work out. And actually, when John Song last week preached from James about making our plans, and when he threw that out as an idea of something he could preach, I thought... That's perfect for the middle of our series on Abraham, because whenever Abraham is making his own plans, God has other designs. And we've seen this over and over and over again. And so God shows up now when he's 99 years old and tells him to walk with him. That, this is verse 2, that I may make my covenant between me and you. And the Hebrew word is actually that I may give my covenant. He's already established the covenant. That may, may be a little misleading here in our translation. He's already established the covenant. He's promised it. He's, he, is, he has gone through the covenant forging ceremony himself in chapter 15. God has done all that. Now he is instituting a sign for them. And look, he's going to, he's going, he has already promised it. He's already guaranteed it in the covenant ceremony that he went through, and so now there is a sign for him. And don't mix those up. And notice this, he also claims that, or lays claim on Abram himself by changing his name to Abraham. 
Instead of great father, which is what Abram means, it is the father of great nations or great many nations, which is what Abraham means. And so, I mean, to some degree, this is actually recognizing what Abraham has already done. By hatching his own scheme and having Ishmael, (laughs) he's already started another He's already started another line, though Abraham may not even know it yet, as we'll see in next week's sermon. He may not even have realized that God didn't want Ishmael to be the son of the promise. But regardless, we also hear later on in Genesis in chapter 25 that after Sarah's death, he has other wives and other children and all this stuff. He is the father of a great many nations. But it is particularly in the renaming of Abraham that we see God laying claim to him. Now, all of this is important because it's important to recognize that this is God taking the initiative. This is God running the show. That even though there's a covenant sign that they are given and they're supposed to follow through with every generation, it is still an act of God's grace. And look, this gets mixed up. Even within the pages of the Bible, the issue of circumcision gets mixed up. By the time we get to the New Testament and God is bringing other people who are not Israelites into his flock, people start scratching their head. Wait a minute, I thought to be a good person, to be right with God, you had to be circumcised, right? This is the book of Galatians. Paul recounts this kind of argument. It is that idea that we get confused over and over and over again, and it happens not only with circumcision, but a host of other issues in the pages of the Bible, and it happens over and over and over again with a host of other issues in the life of the church, in the history of the church, that we, we stop and think to ourselves, well, I know that God is gracious, but to really be acceptable to him, we have to do this. Right? God's grace plus something else. And of course, if you're religious, right, then you're, you're looking at, you know, particularly if you're a Christian, you're looking at the Bible. So it's really easy to convince ourselves that, well, yeah, of course, I mean, it's right here. God says you've got to do these things. So yeah, it's all by God's grace, but you know, you also got to do these things. <laughs> I'm not saying we've thought it out systematically, I'm just saying that is our intuition, isn't it? And you don't have to be religious to do this. We do this with everything in life. We make our value, our worthwhileness, wrapped up in what we accomplish and what we do. So that even if you're irreligious, even if you're sitting here this morning and thinking, well, look, I'm skeptical about that whole Bible anyway, <laughs> don't think that you've escaped it because this is what we do, right? We follow, all, we follow just a different path that we have made up. Over the past few years, you'll see in the front of, you know, some folks' houses, you'll see a sign, in this house, we believe black lives matter, women's rights are human rights, no human is illegal, science is real, love is love, kindness is everything. You've seen these signs. Look, I mean, there's a big question about, like, what's implied by, of course, each of those little phrases. Uh, Most of those phrases are fine and true in what they say, but it's, of course, what's implied beyond it 
that might, where some of us might have questions. And I don't really want to pick that apart. What I simply want to make the point is that's a way of saying I'm staking the ground that I'm a good person. Whenever I see that sign, I'm like, that's a billboard for your own righteousness. I mean, just as much as sticking the ichthus on the back of your car is a sign that you are telling the world you're a good person. I might catch some flack for that one. We love to put up signs that we are a good person. We do it because we are constantly trying to convince ourselves that we are good people. You know, and I mean, we do this with our political affiliations. We do this with everything. We are constantly trying to pu- push forward the, uh, the image of ourselves and convince ourselves that we are actually worthwhile. We make a law, in other words, that's the kind of the, this is the way Paul talks about it in Galatians. We make a law out of it. A law to prove that we are worthwhile, that we should get a reward, that we are good people. We make a law out of everything. You make a law out of whether you're good at school or not. We make a law out of what clothes we wear. We prove our worth and whether we're athletic. We prove our value and what we listen to. We, oh man, we are trying to prove our worthwhileness by what we post on social media all the time. We make romance choices. We make friendship choices. We make marriage itself into matters of whether we are worthwhile or not. We made our parenting choices a standard by which we judge ourselves and others. We make our purchasing choices. We make our busyness and our leisure. We make our retirement even a matter of our worthwhileness. We make everything a matter of the law. There's a line near the beginning of True Grit. You know, it's like a, it's a Western novel. There's been a couple of movies made from it that you must pay for everything in this world one way or another. There is nothing free except the grace of God. And that line from the narrator, who's also one of the, you know, one of the main characters in the story, it's kind of true. It's certainly true of the way in which we see the world. Is you've got to pay for everything. You've got to prove that you're worthwhile over and over and over again and look for your reward for doing the right thing and being the right person. But it is not so with God. It's not true with God for a lot of reasons, but most of all, because to be in God's presence is to be shown for the fake that we are. If you try to convince yourself that you're valuable and you come into the presence of the living God, we realize very quickly we have nothing to offer. And it is God's grace that actually does teach us that the world can be a different thing. But it is a different thing because of his grace, not because of ours. You know, this naming thing has a history in the Bible. We could go through all of it. But at the very end of the Bible, we're told that all of God's people are given a white stone with a new name on it. 
That's what grace is. It is God claiming us despite of what we have done. It is God putting his name on you that you are his beloved, that he has come for you, that he values you above everything else. And the reason that grace is in contrast to living by the law is because the law says the opposite. I'm proving to you, God, who I am and why I'm worthwhile, but grace will have no part of it. And from the beginning, this whole ceremony is couched in God's grace, in Abraham's story, and even in this moment where God is the one that gives him a new name, despite his screw-ups. But he guarantees it as well, right? He says in verse 6 that you're going to have Many nations coming from you, you'll be exceedingly fruitful and will make, and I will make you into many nations. There's an echo here, back to the very beginning of Genesis, when God tells Adam, be fruitful and multiply. Be fruitful. God's going to see it through. He's going to establish his covenant with them. It will be an everlasting covenant. It will be passed down from generation to generation, and they'll inherit the land in verse 8. So we hear again and again this mantra of a people and a place. God is going to give a people and a place, and we have rehearsed this throughout this series, so I'll be quick about it. But that is, of course, what the theologians call a typological reality. It points forward that God's goal is not merely Israel, not merely the plot of land that is the land of Canaan, the promised land. It is for humanity and for the whole of his creation. That what Abraham is promised is in itself a kind of limited, temporary picture of what he is ultimately doing, even through Abraham even through his descendants. And at the end of, of that, those promises, he says, and I will be their God. The end of verse eight. And it's a funny thing about the Bible and particularly the Old Testament. While there are times when it goes out of its way to say, look, all the idols are not real. More often than not, especially through these stories, what we see is is God just simply saying, but I will be your God, in contrast to what other options are out there. In other words, I'm going to be the thing that you get your value and your meaning from. I mean, this this is what it means for something to be a God. It is true in the ancient world, they probably thought of them as something else that had an existence outside the world, and I don't know. I mean, we talk about demonic forces. I mean, maybe there is something to that. Most modern people don't think that way. But of course, we are still ascribing to other things our meaning and importance and significance. You see, that is what's going on with the law. When we look to all those other things to give us meaning and value and purpose, we are basically saying, you are my God. You're the thing I'm going to come to, to know that I'm worthwhile to know that I'm valuable. And the thing about all of those other gods is they take and they take and they take. 
They promise to give you things. And you know what? The really effective ones do give you a little bit here, a little bit there, a little bit here to keep you going. But they take and they take and they take. When do you have enough money? You never do. When is your family doing well enough? It's never doing well enough. It's a family full of people. It's true. They're all flawed, right? And even if they're all being redeemed, they're all still flawed. We are going to these things over and over and over again, looking for our meaning and our significance, and they take and they take and they take, and they never arrive at the reward. So you may be skeptical about spiritual realities of all that stuff, but make no mistake, you are bowing down to something that is taking and taking and taking and taking. Which is where the good news comes in. Remember back in chapter 15, we talked about how God said he is, his very, he is Abram's very great reward. And the good news about Jesus is that when God fulfills all of these promises, he doesn't merely say, okay, you've done enough, here's your reward. That's how every religious system works. That's how every irreligious system works really too. Right, pay in, pay in, pay in, and eventually you'll be rewarded. Christianity is sometimes twisted into this kind of thing too, to be honest. But that is not the good news of Jesus. The good news of Jesus is that despite what we have done, Abraham's great, 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 I don't know how many greats, grandson came into the world as the son of God, the second person of the Trinity, entering in, taking on flesh, the one who held the world in his hands, being held in the arms of a teenage mother in a stable with hardly any money to scrape together, lived his whole life that way. And when he began his ministry, who did he reach out to? Did he reach out to those who had more to give him? No. In fact, Jesus, I mean, go back, you can go back and read the Gospels. Many of you have read the Gospels plenty of times. You know, the hallmark of Jesus' teaching is really two things. That you can come to him if you have nothing, but if you think you have something, you're fooling yourself. I mean, you can pretty much summarize a huge chunk of Jesus' teaching that way. Come to me if you have nothing. But if you think you've got something, you're fooling yourself. And then he died. A death of judgment, right? That on the one hand was a perversion of justice, humanly speaking, right? But also the, the, the act that 
in which he poured out his own divine justice on himself. You see, Jesus gave his life for us, and then he's raised for the dead for us so that we can have life, so that he might raise humanity up, and that he might in the end restore all of creation. You see, all of this is to say the good news about God, the good news of Jesus is that he is nothing like any of the other gods. He isn't looking for you to give and give and give, and he will one day give you a reward. Instead, he gives and gives and gives. He emptied himself. He gave his life for us. He rose from the dead for us. He gives and gives and gives. And now he gives the Holy Spirit to you that you might grow in him. He is, he is a giver. He gives and gives and gives. And the guarantee of all of this is his son. The guarantee, the way you know that this is true about God is because he has given everything. He has given his own life. And so it is unless he is unwilling, he is willing to be untrue to himself, then it is all true. Unless he is willing to turn his back on the own, his own sacrifice that he's given, then it is true that you if you come to Jesus, are redeemed. You have been purchased from all your sins. And even now, he's at work in your life by his spirit. That's the good news, is that God is the one that gives and gives and gives. That's the guarantee, is the given life of Jesus. And so he gives, <laughs> he gives, a guidepost, a sign. He gives this sign of circumcision. It's a, I mean, it's literally a physical cutting away to mark that he has separated Israel out. It's no mistake, of course, that it's applied to the reproductive organ because the promise is that this will be passed on from generation to generation. This is a sign of what God is doing. Now, we can easily misread it and again start to take it as a conditional. Right? Every male, verse 10, shall be circumcised, verse 14. If they're not, they're going to be cut off. But that's to misunderstand. This is a sign given to show us what happens. The question isn't whether you're a good person or an acceptable person by having done this sign. That's not what God's saying. God's saying, you receive my work or you reject my work. You see, if they turn away from the sign of the covenant, it is not that they fail to live up that they fail to measure up. It's that they have walked away from God's grace because it is a sign that he is the one providing, that he is the one that's at work. You see, the sign is not a sign of what they do, what they have accomplished. It is a sign of what God is doing, blessing them from generation to generation. You know, there's another sign that's given in the Old Testament before the whole complex 
of the Mosaic law comes into place, right? There are two signs that are given. There's circumcision and then there's Passover. Remember, that's before they ever get to Mount Sinai. There is a, there is a sign given when people enter into the covenant community and there is a sign given for the renewal over and over again of this covenant. And look, this is where we get this is why we have two sacraments in the New Testament and they're so and they're clearly kind of translated one to the other. The Passover is probably the most obvious, right? Because Jesus literally sits down at a Passover meal and says, I'm gonna reinterpret this for you. Here's the new meal. And it's, but circumcision is no less clearly connected to baptism, right? Colossians 2 is really clear about this. I'm not going to read all that. Uh, but it basically says, right, what, what, what used to be true in circumcision now corresponds to our baptism. So we are baptized to enter into the covenant community. This is what we call sacraments. Sacraments are covenantal signs, that we belong to God. And there's different ways that this has been misunderstood. I don't want to be too in-depth on this, but some, and this is the way the medieval church headed, was to take it as, well, God's grace will be at work as long as you do this thing. Right? So you baptize people, and they're going to be saved because God works through the sign, right? Well, I think God works through the sign, but just to say you do it, the reformers recognize that really that has become a kind of law, right? A kind of way of earning God's acceptance. There, was a, there has been a tendency in Protestantism to go the other way and to say, well, there's nothing really going on. It's just a kind of educational experience when you're baptized or when you take the supper. You're just being, you're kind of being reminded of what is happening, uh, what has happened to you already. But the truth is somewhere in between. Or to put it differently, it's actually not a question of whether there's magic going on or just a remembrance but rather it is that God promises to work through his covenant. And so he has given us these things that he promises to work through. And there is some mystical element to that because it is the spirit that does the work in us. And there's mystery to that. We don't know everything. Just as everyone who was circumcised as an Israelite was not saved or partook in Passover meal was not saved. I mean, we, we don't believe... Uh, whatever your belief actually about infant baptism is, we don't believe that just because you were baptized, you're necessarily saved. Nobody believes that. Uh, we don't believe just because you came and take communion, you're saved. We don't believe that. But we do believe that God works through them. And there's mystery in it. But because the mystery is that it is the Spirit who does the working. And you can see then that our covenantal categories help us to understand what we're doing here is partaking in the ways God has, has told us to go. The ways that he normally works. 
I will say, and we love our Baptist friends here at Friendship, but this is why we, in Presbyterian circles, baptize babies, right? Because the whole point is we're putting them in God's hands. Because he's brought them into this community and we're giving them to God. And so, again, regardless of where you, where you land on, say, infant baptism or anything like that, the, the issue is whether we are actually coming to these to be fed, to be washed. Not because the action earns anything, but because God says, take these signs to receive my grace. I will work. I'll do the work. And that's what they are, isn't it? The baptism isn't a sign of my faith or your faith or any baby's faith in case of our babies. It's the sign of what Jesus has done to wash us. We come to this table, right, not as a sign of our faith, but as a sign of what he's done. The thing symbolized here is Jesus' body and blood. We come to be fed. So the signs of the covenant are a, are a guidepost to remind us of his grace, to remind us of what he has done to guarantee that it will be effective. So my question for you is are you paying attention? Have you stopped and considered the weight of it? Not the weight of your guilt, but the weight of God's grace. The guarantee that you're given here by his body and blood. The guarantee that you're given in the washing of baptism. That his grace is effective because it is not effective by how good you've been. It is not effective even on, because of the size of your faith. It is effective because Jesus has given his life for you. Let's pray. Father, would you teach us that your grace is effective? Would you teach us uh, this morning through this table that we don't come of our own merit, but we come because of everything that you've given us in Jesus? Would you remind us this morning that you are different than everything else we're tempted to put our meaning and value into. You are not a taker, but a giver. Your whole life as God is bound up because you have bound it in the work of saving us. And that bond is unbreakable because your son has given his life for us. Remind us, encourage us, strengthen us. Give us confidence because we come to you in this meal. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.